Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Good morning, and welcome to Military Network Radio. We are delighted that you have joined us this morning. We have a terrific show for you today, and we are very pleased to be talking about an important topic that's near and dear to me and to my guest co-host today. I am joined today by Les Davis, and Les is a veteran. He has been on the show before, and he also worked at AMVETS as a VSO recruiter. So there's a lot of experience coming on, and we're going to be talking about the uphill climb of veteran caregivers. And this is a topic, I think people hear the name caregiver, they're not always certain what that means. And I think that we're going to shed some light on some reality today. So many times we talk about statistics and there are this many caregivers and that many uh, veterans. But we're going to add a human face to this today and put in some of the challenges, the learning potential, and the tenacity and persistence and love that's needed to do this right. So, you know, Les, we are, first I'd like to welcome you on again. It's very nice to have you with us today. Well, thank you for letting me co-host on this subject. And uh, the more I have found out about it, the more uh, I'm in awe of the caregivers, the more I'm just uh, absolutely befuddled by VA. And I know we're going to get into all that, but I just uh, thank you for letting me co-host today. Oh, it's a pleasure. And you know, I think most of you know that I also found, founded and run VeteranCaregiver.com. So this is something I work with daily as well. And I also am in awe of these resourceful and very tired caregivers. So let's talk a little bit about how this started. In 2010, the VA really put together a, a big program that was funded through Congress called the National Caregiver Program, has a bigger, longer name, but we'll move on with that. And this is for post 9-11 caregivers, which I'll tell you up front has caused some angst among those pre 9-11 caregivers. And we'll get more into that as we go on today. There are 1.1 million caregivers in the post 9-11 group with a percentage of them qualified for inclusion in the caregiver program. And it is not a simple thing. Caregiving is a team effort, and I'm I'm going to put quotes around this next sentence, ideally including the care team, the caregiver, and a full recovery plan. But that only covers when you're in the hospital. Going home is a totally different ballgame, as we will talk about today. So legislation is pending to expand this program to caregivers from earlier conflicts, but the full implementation will take till approximately 2021 as infrastructure is put in place to handle that. That's a long time. Wouldn't you agree, Les? I, I absolutely would. And just think about this. These are these are caregivers that put their life on hold. They they may be working full time. They may be in college, so they put college off, or they may be a parent that that you know thought they were moved on, and then they get uh, then they have to come back and care for our wounded. 
Now, the, you talk about, we always talk about the veteran sacrificing, Linda. The, it's, the, mm-hmm. it's the caregiver sacrificing. I, they're, just, um, they're just amazing people. Well, you're right. And this is a club no one wants to join. I mean, this no. is not something that, that you say, I'm going to get up this morning and I, I, I just am looking forward to being a caregiver. Is there a lot of reward in being a caregiver? Yes, because you are very supportive and you do an awful lot of good. But it is a system within a system that has a lot of inconsistencies and there's a lot of training and learning to do among those who are doing the job for caregivers. So what is a caregiver? Generally, you know, to the audience that is not familiar with this, it's people who are supporting the veteran to assist in the activities of daily living. Sometimes you'll hear this referred to as ADLs and to support the veteran in the recovery. The VA talks about caregiving is only, and this is in quotes too, for the health and well-being of the veteran. And the program was designed to support caregivers, spouses, parents, friends, siblings, anyone who provides support and care to the veteran who is unable to do that for themselves. And before you ask, yes, there are people who do not have caregivers and there are some really big challenges to those who do not have those who can advocate for them. So as Les and I talked yesterday, caregivers are classified by tiers, with three being the highest level of care, and tiers two and one requiring fewer hours of care per week as evaluated by the VA. So big system, isn't it, Les? Huge prism, and it's spread across the entire VA system, which is not a uniform system, as we discussed before, Linda. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, each each VA medical center does have at least one caregiver support coordinator, and the coordinator is in their part of the care team. That's the theory. I think that we have found in practice, the caregiver is not always seen as an integral part of the care team, and that can provide some challenges, which our guests will talk about at length, I'm certain, because when there is good communication and integration of the caregiver into the care recovery plan, there there is a much better health outcome that comes from that. But caregivers often feel invisible and the care teams are not always receptive to the caregiver input, even though they live with them 24-7. So we'll talk about the physical injuries, the invisible injuries, and some of the challenges. We will be talking today mostly about a veteran caregiver, someone who has been in the system for quite some time, because that is very important that we talk about people who've been doing this and giving their lives to this and advocating for others to do this for a long time. But before we do that, Les, you had worked with AMVETS and you wanted to mention two programs for people who may become new caregivers before we go on to that. Absolutely. There is, you know, when I was working for AMVETS, there was uh, two, uh, possibly three programs that I thought very highly of that could help that new caregiver out. One was the Healing Heroes program that AMVETS offered. This is a program where they pay right when the warrior comes back and they're in the hospital first recovering. This is a program where AMVETS actually pays for the uh, travel and and hotel stay for the first 30 days. The other program is the Wounded Warrior Transition Workshop. This is, a again, a a three-day workshop where it helps transition soldiers that are having some transition issues, PTS issues, or maybe some TBI, and it brings them in for a weekend with a spouse if they want to come. 
and helps them uh, deal with these issues. And, it's, and it has been widely successful. There's been studies done. The issues, like all, like my issues with all VSOs, is just not advertised, and they just don't put enough money to really back it up, Linda. Mm. And that, and then thirdly, there was the the, the um, employment piece uh, that the that AMBES offers. And there's some home office jobs out there that the the caregiver could, if she wanted to go back work, maybe step away, do some just and and do some work. You know, four hours here, four hours there. And there was that kind of employment opportunities out there, too, that I wanted to introduce into this. It just, uh, my time ended with AMVETS. We never got it fully implemented, but it was something I started working with the Wounded Warriors, with their Warriors to Work program as well. Well, I think it's valuable to know that. We are going to be talking today with veteran caregiver Tori Shannon, who has an amazing background that I will allow her to share with you. But today's show will give insights, observations, and suggestions from Tori, who is obviously an experienced caregiver. We'll talk about her story, empowerment, practical lessons, and the way forward. Again, we mentioned 1.1 million caregivers, and some of them are in the National Caregiver Program. We're gonna be putting the human face, the human element to this community with her humor, intelligence, and compassion. And Tori, I would love to welcome you to Military Network Radio this morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And I really look forward to the conversation that we're going to have today because I know that there are a lot of caregivers out there who are really struggling. I hope to be that empowerment for them with sharing my own message and story. So thanks for the Uh, opportunity. uh, It's a pleasure. I, I know that that will occur. We have just a couple of minutes before the break and we can continue after. But can you start with a synopsis of your story and how it all began? Sure. Um, our, our story is a little interesting in the fact that um, my husband, John Shannon, otherwise known as Dan, um, he was wounded in November of 2004. And the interesting fact is that at that time, I was actually his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. We had divorced in 2003. He volunteered to go to Iraq, uh, went to Iraq, and then uh, survived a gunshot wound to the head, a penetrating gunshot wound to the head. And because we had already been divorced, we have three children together, I knew that at that time, the best thing for his recovery was to have his children with him. Mm-hmm. So I vowed to take two weeks off from work. I packed the kids up, just packed a few duffel bags and drove all night to get to Washington, D.C. Once I heard that he was stabilized from Germany and on his way to D.C. to Walter Reed. And once I got there, I realized it was way bigger than a two week time off. Uh, from work. So I kept extending my time off and extending my time off and refused to leave because his needs were much greater than what they were realizing. I was the only one that knew him before his injury versus after and what the changes were. So the doctors really needed me to be there, to be their eyes and ears. Well, one thing led to another, and we have since remarried. We remarried in 2005. Um, Definitely wasn't in the plan. (laughs) <laughs> but once I realized um, that, you know, there was hope for us as a couple, as parents, um, and as a team, uh, things have been quite a journey. So I, I'm really fortunate to be able to, to share that story as well. No, I'm looking forward to that as well. And I, I think that you bring so much experience to this, but just even that initial part about 
person that knew him before. I think with these invisible injuries, it's especially important that you do have a perspective prior to injury so that you know what your goals are, the changes are, and, and where you can make a difference. But at that point in time, I'm guessing, and we have very few seconds before the break, you had no idea what was facing you. Oh, none whatsoever. It was <laughs> every day was something new and there was no handbook to guide me. There was nobody ahead of me to, to share how to get through it. So I had to learn Absolutely. Myself. So we will come back after a break and we'll continue with this story. We're Military Network Radio and we'll be right back after these short messages. Sacred Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom in ingenuity, and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures to her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons. Her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine, and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. It's words you never heard. I managed to run out of coffee again this morning. I didn't even have enough to make one cup. Boy, was that a miscabobble or big mistake, because I make serious coffee so strong it wakes up the neighbors. Now, I don't have a problem with caffeine. I have a problem without caffeine. I get wadgety and brickety. Did you know apples are more efficient than coffee for keeping people awake in the morning? Unfortunately, I didn't have any apples either. Acorns were used as a coffee substitute during the American Civil War. Without my hot cup of coffee in the morning, I'm feeling pretty squirrely myself. What do you call that piece of cardboard that wraps around your coffee cup to keep from burning your hand? A zarf. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Tori Shannon about the uphill climb of veteran caregivers. Tori, before the break, we were talking about the fact that this was much longer than a two-week break. You kept extending it. And I wonder if you would take our listeners back to the life at 
Walter Reed Army Medical Center, the old facility, and, and what that really meant. What did that look like each day? And how did you gain the knowledge that this was going to be a much longer road to recovery? Well, you know, it's it's um, quite a journey there because we ended up spending three years total at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. We literally raised our children in the hallways of that hospital. Mm-hmm. And so I had to juggle not only caregiving, but parenting and trying to navigate a system that there was no handbook on, like I said. Um, there was a overburden um, at the hospital. They just did not predict the sheer volume of wounded, ill, and injured coming in. Um, so they were literally deluged with, with too many people and not enough structure to support it. So, you know, right off the bat, um, they lost my husband immediately after discharge. Mm-hmm. And it took two weeks to finally find out who his case manager was. And when we finally connected with her, she says, where have you been? We, we, we didn't know where you are. And he says, I've been here the whole time. I've been at the Malone house. And I said, you guys had my phone number. What's the problem? There was, <laughs> there was no communication. In fact, the day that they discharged him, they could have called me to come pick him up. I had just left that morning from being at the hospital with him. I took the kids over to the Malone house, which for reference to the viewers mm-hmm. or listeners not aware of it, the Malone house was an outpatient, like a hotel Right. That housed the the um, the families. Mm -hmm. And those were rooms. It was a it was a hotel room with two double beds, no kitchenette. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were no kids toys. There was no computers to reach friends and family. If you needed to make a long distance phone call, you had to somehow find a way to get your hands on a um, a calling card just to make phone calls. So the resources were so extremely limited. What what the service members have now is is like Disneyland compared to <laughs> what it was back then. And, and even then there's gaps. I do not want to portray right, it as, right. as easy because it's not, but it was so incredibly under um, understaffed, under supported, et cetera. So I had to navigate with literally no resources. And I had just left that morning. I had got, taken the kids back to the Malone house and, um, few hours later, I get a knock on the door and I open it and it was my husband and he literally collapsed at my feet. He said, oh, thank God I found you. What they did was they turned him loose with a poorly photocopied map of the grounds and told him to go to the Malone house, which he had no point of reference. He didn't even know which way north was. And he was heavily medicated and he just kind of wandered around holding onto walls just to get where he needed to go. So that was my first aha, holy crap moment mm-hmm. that there is absolutely no way I was going to leave him unattended if they were going to do that, even with me there. So I knew now, I had my hands full. I have to go back to one thing you brought up because I think people aren't aware of it. You made a very illustrated point when you said your coordinator, which is either a recovery care coordinator or a federal recovery coordinator, did not find you. You found them. Exactly. And we didn't really even know who, what her name was to ask for her. Um, Once we found her, we, we got to know her. She was a fabulous person. We just consider her an angel. She did her job wonderfully, Mm -hmm. but there was no communication. There was no tracking. In fact, 
a couple years into this process, my husband helped develop the tracking process that ended up being used at that facility. But that was two years after he'd been there. Mm. And it was because he identified these gaps and said, this can't keep happening. So what we, you know, because we were actually losing people um, who were um, actually dying or right. had left the facility entirely. So, so long story short is we kept identifying where the gaps were. We would work the chain of command. We would propose solutions and then it would get swept under the rug. So that led into the Walter Reed scandal, um, which in 2007, if, if our listeners might go back in their memory banks, had hit the news front page and uh, in February of 2007. Well, we were the impetus for that. We, along with the many others that collectively shared our stories, we, we were trying to get things fixed and the chain of command they were also dealing with the base realignment and closure problems and no funding and it just became it all came to a head so in order to get the changes that we needed to help support those that were coming through those doors and the families that were there to support them that was our only last way that we knew how to get those changes made so you know, it was a long journey. It was a lot of advocating. It was a lot of being dismissed and ignored or just blown off. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that that brought us to that point. And we jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire once we left Walter Reed. So mm -hmm. the old hospital facility is now closed. Um, we never did go to the newer facility. I know that um, a lot of changes have been made, and I'm thankful for that. Mm -hmm. There are still gaps, though. Oh, Liz, yeah. you've had a question. Yeah, uh, Tori, what are some of the discoveries you made along the way? Well, you know, as I as I alluded to, there was um, a lot of inconsistencies, a lot of um, falling through the cracks, lack of communication, lack of support structure, and so on. So I had to get very resourceful, and thankfully, I am a resourceful uh, person as a prior military wife. You know, I I tend to have that personality. We're very self sufficient. But, you know, there was, um, you know, a lot of falling through the cracks. And when we when we when we look at this whole thing, there was so many imperfections. If you spend all your time thinking about what was broken as opposed to what the solutions were, you know, I had to be solutions oriented. I had to be the one instead of complaining and complaining about what's broken. I would have spent my entire time there just complaining. And that's not good for <laughs> anyone. You know, so what one of the discoveries that I made is that my voice did make a difference and one voice can make a difference for many. And I would have people come to me, um, high ranking people that said, don't stop. You're making a difference. Keep doing what you're doing. And I simply would just approach the chain of command in a professional way. And instead of screaming and hollering and yelling and cussing and so on, I had to be productive. So some of those those discovery processes along the way was that my voice mattered, even if it was being dismissed in the moment. I knew that overall, if I kept using it, it would some way, somehow get through to the right person at the right time. So I, I just I didn't get intimidated by it. I couldn't get intimidated by it. So. I just kept talking, <laughs> kept telling them what they needed to hear. And sometimes they didn't like it when I showed up to town hall meetings. They'd say, oh, my gosh, what are you doing here? And I was actually dismissed to the point that at one point 
I was told if the army wanted him to have a wife, they would have issued him one. And I said, well, thank God I'm his ex-wife because you can't shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it, I'm so sorry that you went through that. And you are one of many who have gone through the poor communication, not, no setting of expectations and, and gaps. But you did prevail. You did survive. He did get together. You two got together and, and you, you worked in it. Let's fast forward to, okay, you got through the Walter Reed portion. You presumably had a care plan. And then you entered the care program. Explain what those early days were like. Well, there was there was still a lot of, uh, you know, handing over. There was a lot of miscommunication there, too. I mean, um, you know, all we knew is that the VA was going to be picking up where the army left off. And um, I didn't know who his care team was. I didn't know who his polytrauma case manager was. I had to chase them down. And so at first I solicited the help of a veteran service organization to maybe help me navigate some of that. And unfortunately, and I won't name names, um, unfortunately, they had everything but his social security incorrect on his paperwork. They didn't even have his name right. So I was spending more time educating them than they were in assisting me. So uh, it became very clear that I was not leaving one situation and moving into another that would be drastically different. It was actually a very uh, mirrored or paralleled situation. So long story short is I decided to start educating myself on what I needed to know. I acted as if I was my own VSO. And a VSO means veteran service organization or a veteran service officer. Mm -hmm. And it's basically somebody that's put in place to help those that are in the system move through the system. And even they have a lot of confusion. So I acted as though I was his, his VSO by educating myself on the different programs, the different benefits, the different processes, and the different um, regulations, uh, mm -hmm. because there was a lot of confusion there. So I literally had to learn the Code of Federal Regulations on my own time. I didn't get paid to do it. This is long before the caregiver program came into place. So I was doing it already before the caregiver program came into play. But what a blessing the caregiver program was when it finally did roll out. So I will I will say for, you know, for those that are listening, it was not easy. And um, there were a lot of tears. There were a lot of meltdowns. There were a lot of aha moments. There were a lot of times where I'd go to bed and cry, and then there other times I'd go to bed and go, holy crap, Tori, you just kicked butt today. And you discovered something new, and you're able to share that information with someone else who could benefit from it. So that's where my advocacy hat got put on, and I started sharing the information and starting to write about it and talk about it on social media, and it just became this much bigger, bigger, bigger thing for me. Um, and, and sometimes that could be exhausting too, but I'm still doing it. I'm still here and helping any way that I can with information. Perfect. And we're coming up on the next break and we will resume this conversation. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be right back. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. 
homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children ages 24 to 18 who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that you gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. about the Gabrielunzi bear caught rummaging through a refrigerator in an apartment in Colorado? The tenant heard noises coming from the kitchen and saw a bear with his head in the fridge looking for anything it could eat. What's a word for food that's unfit for human consumption? My wallop. The tenant locked himself in his bedroom and called for help. What's a word for the fear of bears? Ursophobia. We have lots of bears near our Colorado cabin, and we have been told that pepper spray will keep them away. But the idea that it would keep a 500-pound grizzly bear from attacking seems ridiculous to me. I think I'll try the pepper spray in myself and hope the bear doesn't like spicy foods. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Tori Shannon about veteran caregiving and part of the caregiver program. And one of the things we talked about earlier and that we're going to bring back right now is that the caregiver is such an important part of the care team. And Tell us what you have found personally, and I know you and I both have worked with people who have had some challenges along this way, and let's discuss those a bit, and I know Les had some questions about that too. Yeah, so earlier you said that the doctors knew that uh, Dan needed you, and and as we were talking about earlier, you said we had pointed out that caregivers often feel invisible, that and the VA kind of blows them off. To me, I, I think of that as the, the doctor not listening to the nurse, the doctor not listening to the person who knows the patient the best. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if you could go into that a little more detail. Absolutely. Um, that was probably you know, when the doctors were saying, look, we need you here. And they even wrote letters to the effect that they needed me to stay there because the army was not willing to pay to have me there. I never made a single dime. In fact, I nearly went into bankruptcy to stay to fulfill the mission of helping those doctors to help him. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, I, I literally, you know, uh, took no money whatsoever. I, I gave up my life in order to do this. And so, you know, being able to be heard was very important for me because that's what was best for him. And when we went into the VA system in particular, um, I was often dismissed. I was actually shushed. I was told to not speak when uh, my husband needed me to answer for him. Um, I've been asked to leave the room 
I've even been told in writing, despite regulations, that I'm not allowed to be at an appointment with my husband. I've, I have courteously asserted myself and said, no, I am here, here for him. I am his caregiver. And um, if he wants me here, then, you know, I, I need to be able to be here. You can't make me leave. And, you know, I've gone kind of toe to toe and nose to nose in some cases with certain providers. You know, we are the eyes and ears. We are the ones that see what's going on day in and day out. We are the ones that can accurately report what's going on. A lot of times the doctors or the nurse, when they're doing the triage, will ask the veteran, how are you doing? And they'll go, well, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not fine. <laughs> they're, you know, they're really falling apart. And they need to hear that from the caregiver who is going to accurately portray and in detail with brain injuries and so on and with stress of PTSD, details get forgotten. Even if they had no intention of withholding it, they forget. So what I have found is that I have had to learn how to step up in a way that was non-confrontational yet firm and say, I have a right to be here. And we've even taken it a step further. We've spent thousands of dollars out of our own pocket to have a legal document drawn up above and beyond the paperwork that we've submitted multiple times to the VA that they seem to keep losing. But we have actually made me his medical power of attorney, his durable power of attorney. I literally, we have a will and trust. I mean, we've gone through great lengths just to assure that I legally have a right to speak for him. And I still get resistance. So it doesn't ever go away. It just is something you learn how to um, navigate or become more comfortable with. You need to build your assertiveness muscles in this journey and understand that that it makes them uncomfortable when you speak for them because you may bring to light the invisible wounds that they may not want to pay for too. You know, it, it could be a lot of different things, but all I'm doing is fulfilling my role in doing what is best for him in any given moment. And if he doesn't want me in the room, I'm not going to force my way in. It is entirely up to him, but he relies on me. And one of his biggest fears is what will happen to me if, if, if something happens to her. He is so fearful of, of what life will be like without me because I do so much. And he knows and admits that if it weren't for me, he wouldn't be here today. And for the lack of sounding dramatic, it's, it's the truth. He really would not have been able to navigate it. I absolutely am terrified for those who don't have somebody like me because it is difficult even for me to navigate, let alone somebody with a brain injury. You know, Tori, as you talk about the uh, caregiver program and the tiers, um, I believe that you're a tier three. Is that correct? Well, that's a long story, <laughs> um, but I'll shorten it. The, the The truth is when this program came into effect on May 9th, 2011, since May 9th, 2011, I have been recognized as a tier three, the highest tier level, which is 40 or more hours per week of actual caregiving that are recognized by the VA. So I've always been a tier three caregiver. However, in 2015, they started doing clinical assessments. Now, I don't argue the value of clinical assessments. What I do argue is that they were requiring him to go into a clinical setting for four hours of appointments and said that I could not participate in those appointments in a city environment. And he receives what's called home-based primary care program. He, we have a telemedicine unit in our home because we live in a very remote location because his 
PTSD is so severe, we actually moved to a remote area of the Rockies. So getting to a VA is very difficult. He was the first person in our region that was nominated for this program, the home-based primary care. So I've been going through quarterly visits, in-home visits. They would drive four hours just to get to our house mm-hmm. um, to do these in-home visits. So they had already established a pattern of accommodation. But suddenly last year in 2015, they could no longer accommodate him for the assessments. And I said, I could not in good conscience exploit him by going into a city environment like that. So it took a year before they agreed to even do an assessment by phone or by records review or by telemedicine. It took me a year just to get them to agree to the accommodation itself. After all was said and done and everybody did their review, it took only a 15 minute phone call. I got the letter this summer saying that I had been lowered by a tier, even though a case manager had been in my home the 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 um, month before indicating that his needs had actually increased. So there's an unfairness here going on. Even though we've documented an increased need, I have somehow been dropped to tier two. Now, you're not the only one. No. There are There are issues across the country in terms of tier reductions. In other words, lowering the tier and the number of hours that are compensated. And there are many who are being dropped from the program. When that happens, We've all witnessed the rise in anxiety. The letters often come with very little communication that talks about why. Um, There are often no reasons. There's inconsistencies across the system. And I I really want you to address those things because I think what is the invisible part of the reactions that occur here is the desperation that some families feel. And the veteran themselves feels like they've gone from hero to zero in one letter and those things are not being addressed nor are they being tracked i agree with you on that Uh, because i have kind of a bird's eye view of this with my involvement in the wounded warrior and caregiver community um, i'm deeply embedded in it and i come across thousands of, of veterans and caregivers per year right in sharing their stories and coming to me for advice and and so I noticed uh, back in about 2012, there were a lot of inconsistencies and it was a new program. I give it credit for the fact that it is trying to grow into itself. So I would go to the national director myself and say, look, I'm noticing some inconsistencies and I have some concerns here and what can we do to fix this? So this goes back many years that I've been bringing these to light, but this last year has been absolutely devastating. Um, there have been so many people that have been not only lowered, but dropped. And I'm talking from tier three to nothing. I mean, I, just yesterday, I had three more caregivers in one region alone identified from tier three to absolutely drop from the program. How do you explain that? And when I'm looking at their documentation and vetting their stories and looking at the language of their denial letters, it simply has this blanket statement that they no longer meet the the clinical eligibility. So we're like, we don't even know how to appeal what what the basis of the denial is. So there's a lot of inconsistencies. I noticed that there's a lot of of, um, different interpretations of the law each region seems to have their own um, rules and it's not consistent from region to region. And then on top of that, you know, there's there's this um, language of you've been graduated. 
I'm sorry, but when somebody is 100% total and permanent, like my husband is, and, and if I'm told that he's graduated, graduated to what? What are we graduating from? There is no full recovery in those cases. So why is the support disappearing or being minimized? And what it's doing is it's creating stress. Just the fear of being lowered or dropped is enough to send our veterans in a tailspin. I've had a absolutely horrible, horrible month. This is the worst month out of the year for my husband. And we are basically at a point now where the lights are on, but nobody's home. My husband is so disoriented. He is having waking nightmares. He's he's really struggling and it's not for the lack of trying, but I have literally been without sleep, without support, without peace of mind. And long story short is just the fear of being lowered or dropped is enough to create setbacks in the recovery process. So when we look at this improvement factor that they are citing, we don't see where the improvement is. And alternatively, when there is a lower or a drop in this program, um, it, it sets off a chain of events. And in some cases, it actually makes the veterans suicidal. It, it, they, it's contributing to the homelessness and the, the suicide um, issues that are going on right now. So what the VA is not realizing is that they are actually not taking into consideration that those veterans, once they've been lowered or dropped, they need to be tracked for the mental health implications that are coming as a result of, of this um, lowering or dropping. But they need to really understand that this is not something you can arbitrarily and give blanket statements about. You just can't do it. You've got to be specific. Why did somebody improve or why do you feel they've improved? Have you really actually talked to the caregiver to verify that information? We need to be able to have our voice heard. And I don't think that that is openly and accurately done. There's a lack of two-way communication going on. And I think that the records actually reveal that the problem exists. So I, I, I'm, I'm getting frustrated because it breaks my heart and I also am affected. Um, I consider myself fortunate that I haven't been fully dropped. Um, it's, it's a fear. It's an actual fear and it is impacting us and thousands of others. I think you've accurately summed that up and I think it's important. We're coming up on our third break and we will resume our story after the break. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be back with Tori Shannon right after the break. We're Military Network Radio and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many of us look forward to the holidays all year long. It is such a magnificent opportunity to get together with family and friends and decorate and give gifts and eat the most delicious food. But numerous people dread the holidays. As far as their weight, health, and exercise are concerned, they know they'll have so much temptation and chances to derail their healthy lifestyle. Many just resolve themselves into thinking that gaining weight over the holidays is a fact and there is no way to avoid it. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want you to embrace the holidays. Have a plan before you go to any dinner, party, or event and decide what you're going to eat and stick with it. 
Yes, there will be temptation, but you can overcome it. Stay with the plan and reap the benefits. You can contact us at fitnessminute at annettehammond.com. frequently drive on a street named Cemetery Hill, which makes me wonder who got to name these streets anyway. Whoever named Psychopath Road in Michigan, for example, must have been off his cursive. I mean, who would ever want that for a mailing address? In Alabama, there is a This Ain't It Road. I guess this is where a lot of lost drivers end up. Personally, I would like to live on Slim Bottoms Road in Mount Vernon, New York, even though some might say that would constitute a bit of a teradiddle. That's a little white lie. So what do you call the business of naming things? Onomastics. Finally, there's Little Schmuck Road in Indiana and Cannibal Road in California. I'm sure that keeps people from trespassing. It's marching Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We were talking before the break about the fact that often people are dropped tears or taken graduated and that's again in quotes from the program the caregiver program but if you are dropped and you do not know why you are dropped and you aren't you are making every effort to find out the reasons for drops and the answers are coming back vague or ambiguous or just appeal this if you disagree how do you then go through an appeals process Um, you know, I've got the, the, the letter of the reevaluation where I was dropped a tear here that I can share. And it is so ambiguous, (laughs) you know, it's just our own experience. And I've looked at the, the letters that have been given to the other, um, veterans and their families and their caregivers, and they all are unilaterally ambiguous. Um, you know, the graduation quote and so on, but this is, it just tells me that there is a reflect that, um, it, that I am now recognized at tier two level as of July 1st. And this reflects a change in tier level from tier three based upon the clinical eligibility assessment reevaluation done on June 1st. And therefore, there's going to be a change in the monthly stipend. It doesn't say why. And in fact, it also it becomes ambiguous with the appeal process. So I don't even know what I'm appealing. I don't know. Um, you know, technically I know how to read the records and look at the evaluation and see where they kind of missed quite a few things. Um, but not everybody's that savvy. Not everybody has that type of access or knows that they, that they are allowed that type of access. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting frustrated in the fact that even as savvy or as educated as I am, um, even I am experiencing the fact that there's this ambiguity and lack of understanding of how to even appeal. They tell us to go to our patient advocate, but you know, when I've talked to the patient advocate, the patient advocate doesn't even have their phone number in their signature, in their email signature. You know, it's like there's no two-way communication. And I'm uncomfortable with the fact that there's an actual VA employee who may have a conflict of interest Mm -hmm. assisting me or navigating or guiding the entire appeals process. So 
I hopefully have, you know, kind of answered your question as far as from my perspective. Um, mm -hmm. How do you actually navigate it? And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to let you guys speak on that for just a second um, on what some of these issues from your perspective is. Well, I, you know, Tori, I'll tell you, I, I as a veteran and I. I admire your strength and I admire you being strong for your husband and I admire you navigating uh, what you have done so far. I did. I I didn't want to interrupt you in the last segment because you were just going and going and I was just sitting here in disbelief of, <laughs> of this broken system. I and get, I, yeah. I tend to get a little passionate. I <laughs> and absolutely. And I and I for one, I'm I, I'm building up and I'm just getting red faced and fired up and I'm like, man, we got to go to war. Let's go. And, and I'm just right behind you. Thank you for being so strong out there. Um, one of the things uh, we know there was a GAO, a GAO report done in 2015 that addressed concerns. Can you elaborate on the, the report? Yeah, you know, I, I read that report and it was interesting. It was almost like Walter Reed revisited. It was, you know, they had not estimated the accurate number of those that would be brought in. And so, you know, they, they originally estimated about 3,500 people would qualify for the caregiver program back in 2010. So when they rolled it out in 2011 and they far exceeded that 3,500 number, it's like, where's the money going to come from? Where's the infrastructure going to be from? You know, they, they couldn't hire caregiver coordinators fast enough. And right now, I'll tell you right now, here in the Denver region where I'm located, we used to have three caregiver coordinators. We're down to one. So even after the GAO report came out, which basically identified the fact that there were so many people that they did not predict would be qualified for this program, it was just too much too fast. So the GAO report just kind of reveals that they just underestimated the numbers. They need more funding. They need more um, infrastructure. They need more caregiver coordinators. They need more oversight. They need more um, you know, predictability as far as what to expect when going into this program. And I think what's happening right now is instead of expanding the infrastructure and funding to support this, which, you know, we need that from our legislators. We need our lawmakers to step up to the plate and provide the funding we need in order to sustain and and perpetuate this program. We can't expand it to other eras, and that upsets me greatly. I've been on the record. I've been in the news. I have talked to our, you know, our senators and so on. I have been on the floor of the Senate when Patty Murray introduce this bill to expand. There is no way it can expand and we desperately need to expand it to all eras. I'm very firm on this, but until we fix the mess that it's in right now, there's no way we can roll it out to other eras. And right now with this, I think there was 7,000 people dropped in the last year. That is a terrifying number to me. How in the world are we supposed to accommodate all the numbers? And we're talking 1.1 million caregivers of post 9-11, think about the prior era veterans, the, vet, the Vietnam veterans who are now aging, who have greater needs. So, you know, long story short, that GAO report was quite revealing, but it told us what we already knew. We really, really need to support this program because it's working. What we don't need to be doing is having cutbacks and arbitrary rules and misinterpretations of the law and the inconsistencies and the conflicts of interest and so on. We need to be supported because this does work. What can we do right now to move forward? 
we need to expand the structure of it. We need to have more caregiver coordinators. We need to have the the um, training across the board. Amen. I was in I was in D.C. in March and I told the national director, look, I am seeing inconsistencies from region to region. The interpretations widely vary from caregiver coordinator to caregiver coordinator. And nobody's really following the law. If I know the law, why can't they know the law? They're paid to know it. So, you know, I'm, I'm having some agitation with it, but we need to move forward in a way that helps everyone. When you talk to the national coordinator, what is his response to you when you when you say these things? What does he say to you? Well, you know, she made a lot of uh, uh, commitment and promises to look into it, to, you know, uh, thank you for bringing it to my attention. We spoke at length. We spent quite a bit of time together and I really appreciated appreciated the time she gave me. However, she followed up. I hand carried a huge stack of cases that I had personally vetted of people that had been um, unfairly dropped or lowered. And I said, look, I really need to talk to you about these things. And she agreed. It was wonderful that she was willing to work with me. But that was the end of the conversation. Two weeks after I got home, she sent an email to all the caregivers that I had hand carried their cases to DC and sat down and went over it case by case with the coordinator, with the uh, national director. And she says, I, we're looking into it and nobody has heard a thing from their offices. And, and every single one of them I have followed up with have not had resolution. And they still are either dropped or lowered. I'm a little frustrated with that. I want to be able to work together. I've been reaching out for years, trying to figure out a way to move forward in a way that helps everyone. So I need to know that this program has our back and I'm not quite sure we're there yet. I'd like to get there. I, you know, I agree with you, Tori, and, and working with families is exhausting because you are running into a lot of illogic in a system that if there were process, if there were training, consistencies maintained, if there was the two-way communication, and, and I'll come up and say it, the respect for the needs of the caregiver, for the health and well-being of the veteran, this is not a paycheck. Most everybody there would give up this paycheck if their veteran could be restored to full functionality again. And yet I think that um, there's too often a tendency to view this as numbers, just numbers, statistics. I, I mentioned in the announcement for the show that we, we're going past data because we need to have the data turn into information. So if you had your wish list, what would be the top three things that you'd look forward to having improvements on? Well, the, the, the funding and infrastructure would be one, which I've already touched on. I also want to have more communication and more uh, consistency in, in how, you know, I never met my caregiver coordinator. She's no longer with us, and I, I haven't even met the new one that's left. Um, I've never had the opportunity to really have um, conversations that were constructive or, you know, how are you doing, Tori? I, we'd like to know exactly what is it that we can do for you. We're not we're not having that conversation, and you know I appreciate that the program is there. I can appreciate that someone like me may not land on somebody's desk very often with a whole lot of needs because I've become so self sufficient. But there are a lot of caregivers that are struggling in such a way that they need to be heard. They need to know that they matter. They need to know that 
you know, they can count on the support when they need it because it can happen on a dime. You can wake up one day and be in a crisis. And we need to know that somebody is just a phone call away. So the communication is definitely a big one for me. And, you know, expanding the program, having uh, more consistency and adhering to the law so that there is no wide interpretations of the law and, you know, the funding. We've got to have the funding. We've got to have the structure. We've got to have the communication because, honestly, we are all in this together. We're all on the same team. And mm -hmm. when we have this adversarial um, climate and when we're feeling like we're numbers and that we're not an actual person with true human needs, you know, the foundation of our own health is, is you know, reliant on being able to minimize stress, not add to it. So, you know, we have our own residual issues with health issues. I've had uh, stress-related issues pop up that now I have to figure out how to manage that too. So mm -hmm. I'd really like to have more cohesive, consistent um, application of the law, of the program, the funding, the structure, the communication would all make such a huge difference. And that would help minimize the suicide rates, the homelessness rates, et cetera. It's like it would have this vast reach to other areas that we're still trying to mitigate the crisis of those that are that are you know we you know my best friend is a military widow her husband um, committed suicide and and I've been witness wow. to the aftermath I cannot bear to go through that with 22 a day you know the numbers vary and right. so on but we have to do something right now or else it's going to get worse. We do. And Tori, I'm so sorry. We are running out of time. I knew we could run this for a lot longer. If you all want more information, go to ToriShannon.com, T-O-R-R-E-Y, Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N. -N. Thank you for sharing your story with us today, Tori, and we'll have another show soon. Thank you okay. very much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 